good morning. Welcome again to Church 21. Super glad that you're here. Uh, If you're new or visiting with us this morning, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here at Church 21. Uh, My role is as the executive pastor, which means I oversee the the legal, financial, operational, and organizational health of the church, um, as well as the other ministries, church plant projects that are all sort of housed in our legal entity uh, and provide some pastoral care to our church staff. Uh, I'm married to Severine. Uh, We have three teenage kids. Uh, My wife is from uh, the Montreal area, but I'm actually from Oregon. And when we got married, we lived in Oregon for many years, had our kids, and we moved here in 2010, so just over 10 years ago, to be involved in church planting in Montreal. So very nice to meet you. Uh, This morning, we are in a sermon series working our way through Romans chapter 8, which is a a letter in the New Testament uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And many would call the the book of Romans the the theological key to the Bible, because if you've ever read the Bible, parts of it can be hard to understand. They can be confusing. And a good uh, biblical hermeneutic or or way of studying the Bible is you use the, the passages that are more clear to help you understand the passages that are less clear. And the amazing thing about Romans is that uh, Paul is extremely clear uh, through most of the book and gives us a lot of uh, ways to understand all of Scripture uh, through the book of Romans. It's also a very dense book, and so in this series, we've just been looking at chapter 8, just that one uh, piece. And today is actually the final installment of this series, which is sad. I know it's been amazing. You can go back and watch them all again. Uh, in the last couple weeks, Ryan and Pastor Dwight have taken us through uh, the last um, couple of verses before our passage today. And in these three verses that they, they spent time on, um, there's a lot packed in there that gives context to where we're going today. Uh, the biblical commentator John Stott says that, that what Paul does in these verses can be grouped into two sets of five points. First, uh, a set of points regarding God's good purposes towards those he, love, he loves, even in the midst of suffering and uh, earthly trials. And then five points about how he works towards those he has uh, foreknown, foreloved, uh, and predestined. And we're just going to, I'm going to very briefly uh, review these super quick uh, because they help build uh, where we're going for our passage today that, that Paul builds on them as a foundation. So in verse 28, John, uh, uh, John Stott identifies five unshakable uh, convictions that God works or is at work in our lives, that he is at work for the good of his people, that God works for our good in all things, at least for those who love him, and that those who love him are those who have been called according to uh, his purpose. Now, beyond our scope to unpack all of that, Ryan dug into this a couple weeks uh, ago, but that's the first sort of five layers of God's work uh, with us. And then in verses 29 and 30, Stott identifies the five next layers, five undeniable affirmations. God is pictured as moving irresistibly from stage to stage from an internal foreknowledge and predestination through a historical call and justification to a final glorification of his people in a future eternity. Again, beyond our scope to dig too deeply into this, hopefully you caught uh, Dwight's sermon last week, and if not, you can go back and 
um, look at it. But essentially what we have in these verses is in the first five, we see God um, at work for the good of his people in the midst of suffering. And then the second, we see the work of God in calling and sanctifying his people. Uh, So sort of moving from the temporal and earthly uh, more upwards into the ethereal. Today, in our final section of verses, verses 31 through 39, Paul is, um, he's built, as he's worked towards this, he's built sort of this glorious tower uh, of convictions and affirmations. And now he's inviting us to climb uh, yet higher uh, to the peak of this, of this chapter uh, into treasures so uh, precious that I um, actually am reluctant, in a sense, to, to lead us into this uh, final bit, lest we trample on what we find there with, with sort of a callous indifference. Um, I, I say this because I know my own heart uh, is sometimes um, hard and, and, and not ready to even receive these, these good gifts, and it is a, it's a terrible thing, a fearful thing to disdain the gifts of God. So what we're going to do this morning is first, before we get into these and we continue this sort of ascent through to the end of the chapter, we're going to spend a few minutes humbling ourselves before the Lord and remembering our brokenness and our, our uh, sinfulness and needfulness. And only then, with the proper humility, will we resume our climb. And I realize that some of you are like, oh, I feel I'm a really aware of my need and my sinfulness. We don't need to do this. Well, some of us do, so uh, I implore uh, your patience and indulgence as, as I seek to bring the rest of us to where you are, that we can join you in kneeling in humble expectation of what Paul has for us and the Lord has for us in this writing uh, this morning. So uh, pray with me towards this end, and then we will get to work. Papa God, we do come to you with a, a mix of emotions. Um, each of us is coming from a very different place this morning in terms of our heart position before you. Uh, perhaps as your children, perhaps as strangers to you, perhaps as soft, perhaps as hardened uh, in our hearts. Lord, I ask that you uh, would, your, would send your spirit in our midst, even though we are scattered across the city. We ask that your spirit would be at work now, humbling us. And for those of us um, who, who don't ne- yet know you, that, that your spirit would be doing the work to draw uh, us unto yourself. And we ask this all for uh, the glory and fame of Jesus' name. Amen. So, our passage this morning, uh, before we approach it too boldly, let's contemplate our position before God. And Paul makes it incredibly clear back uh, from, we're in 8, we're going to roll back, if you have your Bibles, roll back to chapter 3 with me for a moment. uh, And we're going to take a look starting at verse 10. And Paul's speaking about our position before the Lord. As it is written, none is righteous, No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's a kind of snake. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is our natural position before God. And we are unable to change uh, our position by any efforts on our part. Skip down to verse 20, Romans three twenty. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is useful in showing us how uh, terrible we are at following it, but it doesn't justify us. So we are, we're in a bad position and we are stuck. And, and this applies to everyone. Uh, skip down to verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Now, as we go through some of these scriptures from Romans 3, some of you are perhaps freshly convicted by Paul's words. You feel the weight of them. Others of you may be feeling like, you know, it feels a little old-fashioned to take some really old book that's like hundreds and even thousands of years old and say that it has some sort of moral authority over my choices and what I do with my life, um, that it can pass judgment on me. Well, one of the defining motifs of our current age is moral relativism, uh, the supposedly inalienable right to choose right and wrong for one own self, just to do what my heart defines as right and wrong uh, for me. Pope Benedict XVI is quoted to have said, we are moving towards a dictatorship of relativism which does not recognize anything as for certain and which has its own, as its highest goal, one's own ego and one's own desires. Moral relativism. Sadly, this uh, philosophy has uh, is so deeply embedded in our modern or postmodern Western culture that it even seeps into the lives of Christians and the church. And we, we watch as Christians and churches and even whole denominations struggle with the social, political allure of uh, uh, inclusion and, and trading the confirmation of, of timeless moral authority that we have in the scriptures for the affirmation of whatever feels true in the moment to individuals. So while some of you, some of you may be in the middle, may, may allow for some scriptural authority in your life, but there's still areas that you kind of fudge on and, and you adjust towards your own liking uh, to fit your own preferences where you know best or we know best. Um, and then otherwise uh, flat out mar or ignore the clear teaching of Scripture. Examples could be uh, cohabitating with your boyfriend or girlfriend or sex before marriage, cheating on a test, padding your resume, hiding income, taking a bribe, gossip, lying, theft. All of these things, big and small, that we somehow justify to ourselves as being not that big of a deal. We moralize them to our own standards. Does this make it okay? Is is moral relativism all that big of a deal? It feels very natural to us in this age. Well, our original parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, decided for themselves that it would be morally acceptable for them to go around the one rule that they had with the Lord to take from the tree and to eat, that they would be their own standard. And in so doing, basically invented moral relativism. Uh, and plunging humanity into rebellion against God. So, yeah, this is actually a big deal. It's at the root. This thinking is at the root of the human rebellion against God. And it's not a shiny, new, modern, postmodern idea. It's super, super old. It's nothing new, and it's still really bad. And what's amazing to me is that their rebellion was like, there was only one rule, right? And they decided to declare themselves righteous in the face of that one rule and, and just do this thing. Anyways, how much harder is it for us today? We, we have the Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules. Uh, we're going to be getting into a series on the Ten Commandments pretty soon. Oversized water bottle time. You will see that again. So they only had the one rule. We have uh, ten rules. So it gets a lot harder for us to say, oh, I am righteous in the face of those. And then you add to that Jesus' expansion of those rules. It wasn't be like, like I can say, like, I've never murdered anybody, so I haven't done that. But Jesus is like, oh, but if you hate someone, then you are guilty of breaking this rule. If you've never committed adultery, but if you've lusted in your heart, you're guilty 
of that. And even go so far to say that if you've broken any one of these laws, you're basically guilty of all of them. That that is sort of like a pass fail thing that that under this, no one is righteous. And these are only sins of of commission that we're doing bad things that we shouldn't do. What about all of the things, the good things that we should be doing? All the Boy Scout, Mr. Rogers, Mother Teresa stuff that God had planned for you to do with your life. Right? All those wells that you were going to dig and the orphans you were going to adopt and the, the marches for justice that you were going to be at. Uh, what about uh, carrying the gospel into the jungle to cannibals or dying the death of a martyr in India? These are sins of omission, stuff that you probably should have done but didn't even think of. Right? That's a big shift for us in our minds. Uh, perhaps earlier this morning, some of you are in the bathroom taking the Lord's name in vain because you're having trouble crushing candy that's not even real and on your smartphone. And, and so that was your mindset before. But now as we dig into this, you're thinking like, what's it feel like to be shanked for Jesus in a foreign country? You, you begin to see how far we are from what we were meant to be, the, the, the place that we were meant to be. We're, we're so far from that. And, and this is why we should be approaching these things with, with hat in hand, with humility um, and, and, and with penitence. And yet on our knees, we can receive these things with such joy because God loves us, not in our Sunday best, but in our filthy rags. Jump ahead to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in a sense, it's okay that we are in moral rags. There's no other way for us to be, and we're powerless to improve our, our lowly station before God. Do you, do you feel better and worse at the same time as we dig through this, this mess? I think that's where I wanted us to be. Most of us now are, are at the right place for us to actually address the glories and the treasures that we find in our passage at the peak of chapter eight. It's already been read for us in full, so not going to read it again. We'll just go through it verse by verse. Three times, three times in this passage, Paul uses the word for. Now, in the original Greek, this is the word huper, which is fun to say. You can say it with me at home, huper. Uh, and this is the word for. And just like in English, the word for, the word, word huper can be used in a few different ways. And Paul is going to do just that this morning. So three ways. First usage shows up in our first verse in verse 31. So Romans 8, if you're in your Bibles at home, jump back to Romans 8. We'll be hanging out at the end of that chapter. Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Long, long ago, in a land far away, uh, I used to be a runner. Now, when you see me, please don't challenge me to a foot race uh, at this point in my life. Uh, that was about 25 years ago, and I was about 45 pounds lighter. So uh, not to say that I couldn't still destroy you on the track. There just might need to be like an ambulance waiting for me at the finish line. Uh, but in high school, American high school, so grades 9 through 12, uh, I ran all year long. In the fall, fall sport, ran cross country, so outdoors, long distances. And in the winter, ran uh, winter track or indoor track on those crazy curved banked structures. And then in the spring, which was my favorite, uh, did track and field. And at every event, every meet, every race, my dad was there. 
the only time in memory that he didn't show up for a meet, uh, he was in a car accident so unusual that it made the local papers. Like, went under the bus, and, like, there was, like, the roads were slick, and there was a picture of our, like, station wagon, like, tucked under this bus in front of a Kmart. Uh, he was fine. He called my coach. He managed to communicate to me just before my race started that what had happened so that I wouldn't worry because normally my dad was always there without fail. And in cross country, you usually at that age, we'd run about a 5K, five kilometers, and would wind through the woods and go different, kind of loop back on itself, go different ways. So ahead of time, my dad would pre-figure out where to go on different points in the race to kind of jog from point to point so that he could be there as I ran past to cheer and to encourage me and to call out my pace time because my dad was for me. He was for me, and he was for me having uh, a good race, running my best race. This is the kind of for that Paul uh, means here when he says that God is for us. This is to be on one's side, to favor and further one's cause. This is a, the picture of, a, of a, a parent lifting a child so that they can reach something that's otherwise out of reach. This is a, a picture of a child uh, blocking traffic so that the little ducklings can follow their mother across the street in safety. This is the Lord turning all of these uh, awful things that are happening in our lives for our own good, as, as Ryan uh, unpacked for us out of verse 28 a couple weeks ago. And the verse says, if God is for us, who can be against us? John Stott points out that without that if part of the verse, the church in Rome could have easily had a really long list of people that were against them, like everyone was against them. That would have been really easy to do. But when we acknowledge the foreness of God towards us, that list becomes powerless. So this is the first of the three fours. Uh, We find the second in the very next verse, verse 32. Romans 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. One year in maybe 10th or 11th grade, I can't remember exactly, our short relay team, the 4x100, qualified to go to state. Now, uh, even though I was easily the third or fourth fastest guy on the team, and I would normally have been on that relay, I lacked, at that age, I lacked the, the political um, acumen to secure my spot, um, the social skills, you could say. And so there were other guys that were all in that thing, and then I was always the designated alternate. So at districts and then at state, um, I was there to substitute in in case someone got hurt It was otherwise unable to run. And it's hard to imagine it in today's climate of budget cuts and things, but back then, uh, the school actually paid for the whole team to go from Portland, Oregon, down a couple hours down to Eugene, Oregon, to the University of Oregon, which is sort of the mecca of track and field in the United States. And uh, they put me up in a hotel, and they fed me, and all in the off chance that one of the guys was going to Uh, need me to step in, which in the end, they didn't. I didn't have to do anything. Um, They ran uh, and ultimately were disqualified because they missed the handoff and it fell and rolled out of the lane and they were disqualified at state, which was super lame. But if, if one of them had maybe torn a muscle, sprained their ankle, got food poisoning at the restaurant breakfast, you know, some, something bad had happened. 
then I would have been forced to put on spiky shoes, hustled out onto the field, stripped of most of my clothing, and, and forced to run as fast as I could for 100 meters in front of tens of thousands of people. And it would have become my responsibility to hand the baton uh, without dropping it and getting disqualified. All the weight of that moment, all the weight of that competition would have fallen on me if I was to step in and run for one of those guys. This is the kind of four that Paul is talking about in this second instance. Not a, hey, here, I'm here for you, cheering, you know, have a good race, you know, good for you. It's a step aside, I'm going to run this race for you. I'm going to do the same word, very different sense. So as Christians, we believe that God isn't just for us in that first sense, but that in Jesus, God actually lived and died for us. That Jesus, the God-man, lived the perfect human life for us and stepped into our condemnation and died for us, taking the punishment for our sin. That he was a substitute for us, just like I would have been a substitute runner. That he atones for our sin, breaking the law, which is where we get the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, the work of Jesus on the cross. And this work frees us, not only as it pays for and removes our sin, but also credits to us the righteousness of Jesus' perfectly lived Life, what Luther calls the great exchange. So this is the second of our three fours. The third four is a very confusing sound because it sounds like I'm saying the number four, but it's F-O-R in case that's been lost on some of you. Uh, The third four we find in verse 34, but first we need to pick up with verse 33 because it all kind of goes together. Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who indeed is interceding for us. Uh, My freshman year of high school, so grade nine, I spent most of the year running as a freshman. There was a classification. The freshmen competed against freshmen. Uh, There was also varsity, which were like the fastest, bestest guys, usually older guys. And then there was this thing called junior varsity. It was like if you weren't a freshman but you weren't good enough for varsity, you could run JV or junior varsity. And uh, the benefit of running varsity is that you lettered in the sport. So you could get a patch that then your mom could sew onto your letterman's jacket. My wife tells me things are not quite like that here. But if you are from the United States – or you have seen older-ish American high school kind of movies, or even like read those Archie comics that they push at you at the grocery store checkout, uh, you might know what I'm talking about. Anyways, so I did end up getting faster and faster. By the end of my freshman year, I did get to run a couple of varsity races, but it was not enough for me to get my letter from the school. So my only other shot, I was told, at getting it was if I could score enough points for second, third place, enough point scoring at districts uh, that I could then earn a letter that way, uh, which would then give me the justification to get the school jacket. Because you could certainly buy the jacket and you could wear it, but without the letter, you looked kind of lame. So I needed to run enough races to get my points, but there weren't, it turns out, enough freshmen who were doing the events that I wanted to do, the different races, um, such as the 400-meter dash. I didn't have anyone to run against. Um, It's not a very popular race. One lap around the track, fast as you can. He who suffers the most usually wins. I loved it. People hated it and didn't want to run. And so, but my coaches advocated for me. 
and they pushed to get me included in the JV race. Even though I wasn't competing with them, they just threw me on the outside lane, and I could run with people. It would be less awkward. They didn't have to have an extra race just with, like, one guy out there in his short shorts all by himself. Uh, and so that allowed me to have enough points to get the coveted letter for my mom to sign so, so onto a jacket. And this is all possible because my coaches – uh, advocated for me to make this happen with the local officials. Um, and I think, you know, they wanted me to see me get my letter. Probably not because they thought I deserved it, but because they wanted me to be emotionally invested in coming back next year. Because as we all know, coaches are always very needy for athletes. This is the third kind of four uh, that uh, Paul is talking about when he says that Jesus is interceding for us. He's advocating for us, speaking for us, not just cheering us on in a general way, but actually working to counter accusations against us to move us out of a one position and into another, uh, to, 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 to fight for our true position in him based on his finished work. Uh, it's described as being in the sense of impelling or moving cause on account of, for the sake of any person or thing. It's similar to the first kind of four that we looked at, how God is for us in a general sense, that he's on our side, but this is a more targeted sense. It's more personal that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, um, advocating for us, stepping into any accusation leveled against us and saying, no, I paid for that. They are blameless. Uh, because we do have an accuser, the Satan, uh, which just means the accuser. It's not his name. You can go in your Bible and just write the in front of all the times Satan's uh, title appears there. And he accuses the saints in the courts of heaven, and then his minions go around and accuse our hearts and minds directly. Uh, yet, thanks to Jesus, we have sort of a diplomatic immunity uh, that, that these accusations can't touch us because of the finished work of Jesus. So he advocates for us, speaking for us in places that our mortal bodies cannot yet stand. He enters the hot furnace of God's holy presence uh, as, as God's own son, the most beloved, and our name is on his lips. Uh, that our failures are erased by his finished work on record, and he claims you and justifies your inclusion in the kingdom of God. This is the incomprehensible glory that we find at the end of chapter 8, that, that God isn't just for us, but that he actually, in the person of Jesus, goes in and, and substitutes for us and dies for us. And then thirdly, that he doesn't just stay dead and leave us alone to wait upon the mercy of God and weather the accusations that are coming at us and that no one is advocating for us, but that he didn't stay dead, but he rose to life and he continues to work on our behalf as an advocate in the courts of heaven. So like a capstone to everything else Paul has expounded for the last few verses, those sort of things that were stacked up over the last few weeks, this sort of triumphant, uh, triplicate way that God is for us, is sort of a, a fortress of fours, uh, if you will forgive the alliteration, that, that from this vantage point, from within this space, if we are in Christ, our position is unassailable. We are inseparable from the love of God. And that, and that the use of one four bleeds into another, that enabling and cheering and shield, shielding into actual substitution, not just guarding us, but moving us to safety and standing in harm's way for us in our place, and now Jesus interceding for us in light of being given for us. 
from this space where Paul has built all of this stuff up, he's kind of built up some momentum and he's at this peak and he's built this space and we are here with him. And so Paul's next words are delivered with his hands in the air. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who will separate us? Who, who shall, who can separate us from the love of Christ, from this exalted place? And he begins to list things. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Paul starts to think about everything and anything that his readers might be concerned about. Tribulation, which is trouble from the outside and despair, which is troubling on the inside is distress, um, physical threats, lack of food and clothing, general danger or the very specific horrors of war. Uh, Paul is flailing about throwing everything he can to at this sort of immutable uh, fortress that he's built around us to say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And then he, 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 he almost pauses for breath here and he acknowledges um, the terrors of this world. Uh, he, he quotes from Psalm 44 and it paints the picture of the world as being like a giant slaughterhouse. And if you've ever seen in video slaughterhouse, I mean, it's like the blood, death, like it's a terrible environment. Uh, Romans 8, uh, 36, quoting from Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So this world is in turmoil. It's just as, as Paul builds all this majesty and glory up, he, he, he gives the lie to a prosperity gospel here. Um, and even hearkening back to verse 28, just show that Christians are not exempt from suffering. Okay, for all of this goodness that, that we have in Jesus and that God is for us doesn't mean that we are ultimately protected from suffering, that your best life now and, 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 and wealth and, and glory, that earthly glory, that this is all to be yours if you just give yourself over to Jesus. It's not true. Paul's like, it's a slaughterhouse out there and Christians are not exempt. And yet God is, God is for us and nothing that can happen in this world can separate us from the love of Christ, that though the world is in turmoil, we have nothing to be afraid of because these things don't touch us in the same way. Verse 37, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors. Through our position in Jesus, in Christ, as Paul uh, often says, housed and protected in this sort of fortress of God's love, we rise above the sort of bloody uh, froth of this world, more than simply conquerors, but actual children of God and inheritors um, sharing in Christ's victory in which we gain everything. We gain everything. I glossed over this before when we were in verse 32, uh, but just to, to raise it back up now, that if uh, it says, if God gave up his own son for us, how will he not graciously give us all things? Ray Ortland said, if God gave us his most costly gift in Jesus, how could he possibly hold back now? Is he going to nickel and dime us now after giving us Jesus? We are more than conquerors. We are the children of God, inheriting all things and Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul wraps up verses 38 and 39 in sort of the fireworks finale you would see on a national holiday. Not so much like Canada Day is here in Quebec. More like the 4th of July in Texas. You know, big builds, 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 and then a huge, huge finish. This is what Paul is doing as we cap off uh, Romans chapter 8. Verse 38, For I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul grabs for everything here, life and death, uh, height and depth, which some commentators say could be represented as, uh, rendered as heaven and hell, um, through things now or later, which basically in those first four give us all of space-time, okay, all of space-time, plus angels, good and bad, plus anything else I haven't thought of but that God made in creation and therefore exists, plus anything else I haven't thought of but probably is really powerful and scary that should be included on this list. Our security in Christ is so all-encompassing as to be untouchable, even by the, the infinite of, of mutable possibilities. Nothing can separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and not even you. One of the tenets of Reformed theology is the recognition of the perseverance of the saints. And what can be misleading about this phrasing is it can make it sound like it's the saints' perseverance that is persevering. Uh, it's the saints' efforts that will persevere. But that is totally the wrong way to understand this, this doctrine. Saints constantly fail to persevere. Uh, They stumble and crumble and generally make a mess of things. What this doctrine really means is that God will preserve and persevere in saving the saints, that he will persevere in saving the saints, making them perfectly like his son Jesus and then bringing them into his kingdom, that, that God will not lose a single one of his children because he is able. Paul puts the emphasis on God. Um, He writes in a different letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter one, verse six. And I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what we're unable to do, God is able to do. And not even you can get in the way of it, which is very, very good news. Maybe you're hearing all of this for the first time this morning. Or maybe it's finally clicking together uh, for you just in your mind, even though you've heard it before. I would invite you to respond to Jesus this morning. He invites you to turn from your sin as well as turn from your uh, righteous uh, deeds and your and your sort of religious trust in your own uh, work. And instead trust in the finished work, his finished work on your behalf to let Jesus be for you in every sense of the word. And you can do that this morning in prayer and in faith. Reach out to Jesus and turn from your sin and trust him as your savior, your king, and your treasure. Because all of the beauty, all of the security, everything that's glorious in that capstone uh, that, that Paul unpacks for us uh, this this morning in this in this passage is really just for those who are the children of God, who have Turn to Jesus in faith. And the Bible tells us, sadly, that most people, most people will not do this. And so it's everything that we've gone through only applies to those who have responded in faith to Jesus. So we implore you to do that this morning. And if you do that, please reach out to us and let us know that you've done this because the Satan, the accuser, will come and cast accusations at you and seek to distract you and harden your heart and remove the good news from you. Um, So let us walk with you, because following Jesus is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. It's a group race. It's a fun run. We are all following after Jesus, running after him um, as a family, uh, trying to to do this, and we, we don't want you to do it alone. So please reach out to us.
Uh, we're going to wrap up this morning with a discussion time, as we have had a habit of doing. I'm going to give you a couple of questions to discuss with those whomever you might be meeting and gathered with uh, this morning, and they should be posted in the chat, and I believe uh, someone will put them on the screen as well as we wrap up. But I'll give them to you now, and you can begin thinking about them. Do you, First, do you struggle to believe that God is for you? in all the senses of the word. How have you successfully or perhaps unsuccessfully fought back against this unbelief? And then second, out of Paul's list of potential attacks, all of those things towards the end that that could shake us, uh, out of Paul's list of potential attackers, which, if any, do you fear? Or do you you struggle in that? Even with the knowledge of everything uh, that we've gone through this morning, is there still fear that lingers? Do you worry about losing your salvation? Do you worry about things in the world shaking your position before the Lord? Uh, so that wraps up our study of Romans uh, 8. Let me pray for us as we transition into this time of response and discussion. Papa God, again, we come to you um, having wrestled with Paul, having wrestled with these things, um, even wrestling with the idea that um, we are powerless to change our position before, but where we are weak, you are mighty. And so, Lord, we ask that even now, again, your spirit would be work in mighty ways in the hearts of those who are hearing and watching this um, and across the city for those who are encountering you in churches all over. Lord, we ask that your gospel uh, would do a mighty work in the city of Montreal, um, that it would shine for your glory. Uh, we, we pray in faith that you are doing this according to your good timing, and, and we ask for patience and faith um, and diligence in this. In Jesus' name, amen.